I don't know that that uh, the scripture which says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I don't know how many of you are excited. I know I get excited. Amen. It's good to be in God's presence, church, Amen. worshiping together. Yes, Amen. Worshiping together as one, one body. And as we come to the scripture this morning, this part in Ephesians, that's exactly what we are talking about, what we have been talking about. And I know I've spent a little more time than I intended to in this portion of scripture, but the more I have read Ephesians, and a whole book of Ephesians, of course, is, is meant for the church at large, not just for the Ephesians church, Ephesians church. But the more I read it and the more I read Ephesians chapter 4, it just stirs my spirit and just um, it causes me and, and challenges me to align myself and align ourselves as a church the way Christ intended for the church to be. The church in general, I mean, if you think about it, not just here in this building, but the church in general that are meeting around the world. Yes, the people of different races, different backgrounds, I mean, different educational levels, different ages, uh, I mean, different everything. There are all kinds of people who gather together in the church. But the emphasis throughout Ephesians, and especially in Ephesians 4, is the unity that he requires in the church. Again, please understand, as much as there is the ethnic and racial diversity, the diversity that Paul is addressing, the unity that he's talking about, is found in the diversity of the gifts that God gives to the church. Goes beyond, like I said, just me looking different from you. And this morning I want to read Ephesians chapter 4. If you could turn with me, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read from verses 11 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. I'm going to read it from uh, the New American Standard uh, again this morning. And I know we have the NIV or whatever version you're, uh, you're using right now, the message is the same. And he gave some, verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by the craftiness, in, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. 
But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head. That is Christ. There is no confusion about that church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's His church. He is and always will be the head of the church. And verse 16, from whom, Christ the head from whom, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The emphasis if we have to follow and we have to be and we desire to be the church that God designed and called us to be, here is the blueprint, church. Here really is the blueprint. If you're familiar with everything that's gone on in the world and especially in America since the 60s, you'll know that the church has been challenged on a lot of levels, right from, from that time, post-World War II, you can go back that way, with everything that happened here and just across the world. And the church was faced with a dilemma while some churches decided at that time to build their walls higher and thicker and to increase the size of the moat. And of course, some of them put alligators in there to keep those, you know, those hippies out. Some decided to drain the moat and build a bridge so that the people who were truly lost will find a way home. Now, I'm not going to judge on uh, how each individually, individual church reacted. I'm not going to judge that at all. But let us always, always remember what we are about. We hold out hope to a world that is desperately looking for something to hope in. We hold out that hope. Before we get into Ephesians, I came across an interesting uh, quotation, and it's a message to the church and pastors of the 21st century, and I promise you it's something that I think we need to consider. Me, I, I, I just really uh, had to sit with this and, and, and work, my, work through this, but also for us in the church to consider says this, we have come, and I've cut and paste, so bear with me. We have, come on, uh, we have come on hard times where the church is now more of a corporation or an institution. And I honestly believe nothing could be further from the biblical truth as Christ wanted it to be. Pastors today seem to prefer to be known as CEOs of church rather than pastors and shepherds of a flock. Many of the techniques being promoted have corporate leanings, the terms and the philosophy, and in fact, congregations are now being seen not as God's flock, but they are processed as institutional entities. It's almost to the place where if you are a pastor, you don't want to tell anybody, lest they link you to the role of a shepherd, and we don't want to do that. But that's exactly what you are, and you should find delight in it. I think it was really challenging to me because 
I meet with pastors and talk with pastors, and it's so easy to fall into running the church like a corporation outside. The church is meant to be healthy and productive under God's will, in His power and in His power alone. We can't be caught up in trying to be uh, slick and, you know, be there and have the right atmosphere. No, we're not a corporation at all. I'm not talking about, again, we have the business side of things that we have to take care of, file stuff and everything else, but I'm not talking about that at all. We got to realize that the church is a family. The church is and always was and is always meant to be a body. A body. And how does a body function? In the body, there's flesh and bones, the various kinds of cells, and uh, the nerve cells, blood cells, skin cells. You can keep going on and on. Each one has a distinct function, and for a healthy body to function, each cell has to do its part. Each cell has to do its part. They simply function according to their God given design and that's when a body is healthy it's when the cells kind of revolt or uh, you know don't want to listen to each other and fight with each other or I don't know what you call it resist one another that's when sickness comes in that's when the body is unhealthy and as much as and Paul is just being as honest as he can be, using the body as an analogy, if the cells don't function right, your physical body falls apart. In the church, if the parts of the body don't function well, the church falls apart. It's just it. It's not about being perfect. We talked about this last time. We need to be careful. Again, church, it's a, it's a challenge not to get caught up, you know, with, Things like corporations do or treat church like just another, uh, just another entity. The church is a body and that's what Ephesians 4 is all about. Made up of individuals, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Each person has a unique role to play to keep the body healthy. And the only way we get an understanding of what our calling is, is when we read this scripture again and again and again and apply it to our lives. If I were to be brutally honest, I have to be brutally honest. I don't think, again, I'm sorry, but I don't think too many churches model Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16. If this scripture becomes a reality in the church, we will all be blown away because when people see a healthy church, they cannot stop and notice. They cannot help themselves, but stop and notice. A church where everybody is concerned about themselves falls apart. A church where everybody's concerned about someone else stands strong. When we come to Ephesians 4, let's just... Uh, Real quick, we got to understand how Paul starts. And if you have chapter 4, the beginning, if you, fin you missed the uh, previous uh, couple of messages, he starts off with the whole idea, hey, I am a prisoner of the Lord. 
and he really is a prisoner in Rome. He's under house arrest, literally bound to a Roman soldier with a chain. He's bound to this Roman soldier, and it's during this time that he writes uh, these four letters, what we call the prison epistles, that he writes during his time in prison. And Ephesians, of course, is, is one of them. Why is he in prison? He's in prison because of his commitment to the Lord and saying that he won't stop preaching the gospel. That's the reason. The Jews were upset with him and now he's in prison because of that. And while he is in prison, he implores, he urges. We said the same idea in chapter 12. He, he says, in, in view of what Christ has done, I beseech you, I urge you, I implore you. To do what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And that's his challenge right there. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And don't forget the words he uses to describe what that walk is all about. With humility, with gentleness, patience, tolerance, and love. You've probably heard me repeat that. I don't know, 20 times, but the whole point of repeating it is so that you remember. I remember right off the bat, gentleness, humility, gentleness, tolerance, patience, and in love. I said this last week, no CEO of any business will come and tell you, hey, this is how you got to deal with people. It's not going to happen. It's not going to be in those institutional guidelines. Like one author said, when the body, the church, is at its healthiest, you will witness, and so will the world around you, to their amazement, the outworking of humility, because there's the absence of pride, gentleness, because there is the absence of force, patience, because there's the absence of rage and anger, tolerance, because there's an absence of legalism and restrictive thinking, and genuine love without selfishness that's how it's done church and verse 3 tells us of course by preserving the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and then he launches into what we call a treatise about and he uses the word one again and again and again the whole idea that he's pushing again and again is the unity where he says one body one spirit one hope one lord one faith one baptism one god and father and of course the emphasis there is on unity and then from verse 7 this is where we we picked up last week. But each one of us has been given grace. And of course, talking about the whole idea of grace, the gospel and the gift of salvation, each one of us has been called out of darkness into the light. So we've been all given that one gift. The gift of grace, as he calls it in the other books that he writes, the other episodes that he writes. But then he goes, you've got to understand, from there he goes beyond this one gift. And he says, now to each one of you, there's been given the spiritual gifts also. And not just one. Some of us have, I believe, some have multiple gifts. But the idea is this. Each one has been given a gift. And as I was reading that, I, I couldn't help but think about how important it would be for us to put our name in there to realize, to sit 
he gave a gift. To Dan, he gave a gift. To Seth, he gave a gift. Each one of us, God has given a gift. He goes, like I said, the whole gift of salvation. And if you don't know Christ, it's the whole, the whole amazing idea of sins being forgiven. Living lives free of guilt, shame, and regret. Where you come to God, accept the gift that He gave. Acknowledging the idea of repentance is acknowledging that you were lost in your own way, in your own life. But now you have turned to Christ and choose to live for Him. And accepted that gift of eternal life. That's the gift of salvation. Like I said, there's more to that. And he goes on because he gives spiritual gifts to his people. I was reading this past week. He says, you were given at least one gift. You were given at least one gift like this pastor was joking. Uh, but I think it's true. If you say you do not have a gift, then you are not a Christian because the Bible says he's given you a gift. That was funny. He was trying to be funny, but I think it was a lot of truth in that. The truth is this. If you are a Christian, you have at least one gift, probably more than one spiritual gift, because it comes from God. Please don't go falling after people, and I've come across at least a couple of people who are laying hands and giving gifts to people of gift of faith, and it comes from God, church. As anointed as I am, I can't give you any gifts. Sorry, y'all didn't get the joke. But it is. As anointed as anyone is, they can't give you a gift because the gift comes from God himself. Regardless of who you are, young or old, rich or poor, talented, awkward, articulate, or someone who just mumbles stuff, it doesn't matter. We all have a spiritual gift because that's what the word of God says. And the truth is this, if you go and exercise your gift, you contribute to the health of the church. Because God gives you a gift to exercise, not to just keep it and hide it somewhere. As one pastor said, if you do not exercise your gift, you have robbed the church of the measure of the impact and influence God intended for his church through you. That was a pretty powerful statement. If God has given you the gift of showing mercy and you don't show mercy, the body hurts. Not just you. The body hurts. If you have the gift of organization and you don't exercise the gift within the body, the body hurts. If you have the gift of service but you don't serve within the body, the body hurts. If you don't exercise the gift that God has given you, you are robbing the church of what God intended for the church. Of course, the... If you want to look at the list of gifts, it's in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, here in Ephesians 4 and also 1 Peter 4, uh, it says, gives a list of the different gifts that are there. And again, I'm convinced it's not an exhaustive list. There's more than that as well. 
God has given us each an ability different from, um, different and unique, sorry, not different, unique from the person sitting next to you. God has given us all gifts. And then verse 11, he comes to this. And he gave some apostles, he gave some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Now, right off the bat, some people qualify those as four because they, they connect uh, the uh, pastors and teachers together, the chi in the middle. I say four and a half because not all, I mean, all pastors need to be teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. So I say four and a half right there. It doesn't matter. That's just me. But please understand here the gifts that he's given us. The first one is apostle. The gift of apostleship. The gift, the Greek word, of course, is the word apostolos, which means to send. If I send forth, send someone forth. We get the word missionary from the Latin version of the word apostolos. And the word is actually really fascinating because when Paul writes this, what he has in mind is the disciples and himself. I know some people think, yes, 12 disciples and of course Judas fell away and and they added who? Matthias. They added Matthias in there and some people say, well, some people... I don't know, they just, it doesn't matter. Matthias really wasn't the original one, so Paul is the, and so 12 or 13, it doesn't matter. But the early church defined the apostle this way. One must have absolute authority under Christ, who were called and given the authority by Christ himself. They must possess gifts of miraculous nature and have wisdom and devotion to the Lord. So it's interesting how they defined it in the early church, you know. It has to be work under the authority of Christ, given this authority by Christ himself, and must possess miraculous gifts and have great wisdom and devotion. So who were these apostles? And the apostles were spiritual pioneers who founded the church, those who established the doctrinal truths that shaped the early church and that have come through all these generations to what we have right now. And they were witnesses to the risen Savior themselves. Here's the thing, and hear me out here. I don't, I don't think they are apostles today like the way Paul meant it back then. Okay, it's in the strict definition of the word, the way the early church understood it, it's not that. Now, I, I know some churches and traditions uh, use the word apostles because someone has a really good ministry and influential ministry and I don't argue with that at all but please understand that definition is very different from the definition the early church understood the word apostolos because the original apostles were in the first century founding the church they were commissioned by Christ themselves please don't misunderstand me do people still work in the same anointing, if you want to call it that, or the same ministry of apostleship in that gift? Yes, they do. Please understand what I'm saying. I'm making a difference right there. Yes, they work in the same kind of gifting as apostles, people who are sent forth, but in the sense that Paul is writing it, I don't think they function right now, and the early church understood it. But that is, they work in the same gifts and have the same abilities, work in the same supernatural power, and they have the same thing, the same gift, if you want to call it that. 
So people do. Again, let me summarize that because I don't want you to get confused. Yes, I do believe people work in that same kind of apostolic ministry today. Okay, But in the strict sense of the word, uh, the way they understood it, no. Then, of course, ap uh, apostles and then he gave prophets. If the prophet was the one, if the apostle was the one who was sent forth, the prophet was the one who spoke for it. He spoke for God. The prophets, in the, in the sense, they were the ones who served by being inspired spokesmen for God. But you've got to think about this. The church now is very different from the church back then when this was being written. The early church. We don't face the problem the early church had because we have the word of God, the Bible. God's ultimate and absolute truth is here. So that we can check what's being said against God's word. But they didn't have God's word. The prophet in the technical sense of the word were God's spokesmen. You know their verbal ministry. They had exhortation, predictions, warnings, revelation, dreams, visions, you know, encouragement. And, and a lot of uh, stuff that goes with that. Yes, they ministered that way. But, uh, and, and I know we know a lot about prophetic ministry. But just want to skim through this a little more. To look at one thing that sometimes is overlooked a lot in the difference in the early church. Yes, the prophets were considered the mouth peace of God, but they considered this, prophet spoke without error. A prophet spoke without error. And one of the most important roles he played, especially in the early church, like I said, that is often overlooked today, and how they were beneficial to the body of Christ is this. They lent credibility to what was being said and what was, ta what was taught. They didn't just make prophetic utterances, but when you were in the presence of a prophet or prophets, they gave truth credibility. It's like you say, they verified or validated the message that was being taught. Today, what, what we can do, again, you see the difference. Today, we can, any prophetic word, we can take it and compare it to the word of God. Back then, when whatever was being taught, it had to be verified, and the prophets played that role of verifying what was being taught. Of course, they always consider the prophet to speak without error. I don't think we can, uh, we still have prophetic ministry here, but I don't know if anyone can claim to speak without error, even though they're speaking for God. You know, we've still got to take everything they say to God's word, especially if it's personal prophecy. Take it to God's word. If it doesn't line up with God's word, run away. That's all there is. But the prophets also played that role back then. They verified, they validated what was being taught and what was being preached and what was being said. And so they played that role back then. Again, I wholeheartedly believe in the prophetic ministry and its manifestation in the church today, but you see the difference a little from the early church. God's word, church, there is no, please don't ever, and I don't think we do in this church, don't ever let anything man says elevate itself about what God says in his word. We can never make that mistake. As, a, as good intentions as they have and as holy a life as they live, it is never above the word of God itself. 
So you have apostles, just pointed out the difference, prophets, see their role, especially in the early church and the way it is right now. And then, of course, evangelists. Evangelism, we're more familiar with this. And, you know, evangelists are those who just took God's word, especially outside. Uh, the lost were always on their mind. That's the way it was. The lost were always, they were effective communicators. They were good at, at delivering and preaching the gospel to people. And I know several people who are great at evangelists. I mean, I'm not even talking about Billy Graham, who's probably the greatest ever, preached to so many people. But I know people. I mean, you know, you're sitting in a, you sit in, a, in India, we travel by train quite a lot. And so in a train, in each car, I mean, you have these big cars, and then each one has six people sitting in each, uh, what do you call it, like a, we call it like a booth kind of thing. There's six people. And I, I know people who, you know, you're in that car for like six hours. By the end of the time, that person has preached the gospel to all six people by then and probably saved half of them too, if not all of them. That's a gift. Not everybody can do that. And please don't force everybody to do that. I've, I have a student of mine who... who grew up in a church that was, I mean, he's a great guy, but one of the things that hurt him a lot in his walk with the Lord was they forced him to stand at the street corners with a sign and, and preach the gospel because everybody had to do that in the church. And that hurt him a lot, and it took some time to come back, you know. Evangelism is, yes, our responsibility to preach the gospel, but some people have the gift of evangelism. It's very different. And we acknowledge that. And, and most of the time, evangelists don't stay in one place. They're here, they go, keep going, keep going, keep going. And they preach the gospel all over the place. You know, and so you have apostles, you have prophets, and you have evangelists. And like I said, Billy Graham, probably the greatest ever uh, that we have seen in modern times at least. And that because the evangelists kept jumping around from one place to another as the Spirit led them, God gave pastors and teachers. Like I said earlier, is it... Many people hyphenate that, and I'm not here to, to, to settle that dispute of whether it's the same thing or same person with two gifts. It doesn't matter. But here's the truth. To be a pastor, you've got to learn to be a teacher too. But to be a teacher, you don't always have to be a pastor. This is different. But God gave us, God gave us, uh, gave us this list of, uh, what can I call it, the gifts that are there. And if you have a chance and want to, just read the other scriptures that goes, go, uh, that goes with that. Anyway, he gave those gifts in the body. But why did God, and this is where we're coming to, but why did the Lord gift the body with the spiritual gifts? Why did the Lord gift us with gifts. I mean, couldn't he have done it himself? I'm sure he could have. He was God, right? He can do whatever he wants to. Couldn't he have sent angels to do it? I mean, all he had to do is angels go do this and they would have done the job. But there's a reason that he gives gifts to us, flawed people. And that's what we're going to explore real quick. As you look to verse 12, it answers the why. Why did God give us gifts? The main reason, of course, is because for a body to function right, all the gifts need to be exercised. And as you come to verse 12, you see three reasons right there. And it's almost, if I can put it like this, reason number one is the beginner level. Reason number two is the greater reason. And of course, there's the ultimate, the final ultimate reason. The first reason is for the equipping of the saints. The greater second reason is the work for works of service. And the final ultimate reason is the building up of the body of Christ itself. 
He gives gifts and he names all these gifts here. And the reason he gives these gifts, the first one it says, for what? For the equipping of the saints. The equipping of the saints, your gift, when it is exercised rightly, it equips the person next to you. Not just next to you, everybody, you know what I'm talking about. When I exercise my gift, I equip the saints. When you exercise your gift, you equip the saints. That's what he's talking about. You equip, the gifts were given so that we can equip the saints. And now, of course, some gifts are visible, some are not visible. Does not mean one is less important than the other. We know that already. Because the Lord looks, ultimately, He's looking at our hearts and not just what we do. He looks at our hearts. It's kind of interesting and uh, it brought me a chuckle because as I was studying, I came across this person who... He said, the Lord looks at us through x-ray eyes. I thought, okay. And then he goes on to write, think about this. No one walks around with x-rays of the bodies with them to show people. Oh, look at my heart right there. Look at my stomach. Now this one, the real stomach that's inside. It's pretty good looking. Oh, look at the kidney. No, no one does that. We, because of our flawed nature, we are more caught up with the outward appearances and what we do. But what God looks at is the heart. And everybody, when we exercise our gifts, whether it's seen by people or not, the Lord knows what we're doing. It's, it's funny, I can go on on that. My mind went really far with that. That's my colon, my gallbladder. I just, I just went crazy with that one. But the whole point is this. Not all the gifts are visible, but every part has an important part to play and needs to be exercised. I mean, you won't find my appendix, it's gone. Sorry, I told you I need to keep going. Um, so. Okay, we're talking about the body and its spiritual nature has the same kind of idea. Each gift equipping one another for the function when it's exercised equips the rest of the body. There is no resistance, there is no rejection when it comes to a healthy body, even in the spiritual sense. So the reason... God gives pastors and teachers is so that they will equip the church. The reason God gave apostles is so that they will equip the church. The reason God gave prophets is so that they will equip the church. The reason they have evangelists is so that they will equip the church too, to be evangelists. The primary purpose of the gifts beside, and I say evangelism is more on the outskirts in terms of uh, building the body, but because the focus is on the loss there. But primary reason is to build or to equip, sorry, to equip the saints. And it's kind of interesting, the Greek word, if you look at it, the Greek word for equip is the word, uh, I'll say it, it's katar tizo. It's a very interesting word because the meaning is this. The idea is to add what is lacking so the original purpose is fulfilled. To add what is lacking so that the original purpose is fulfilled. And the word or the image that comes to mind is a net that is torn. And when the net is patched or sewn back together, it is prepared to fulfill its original purpose. That's what equipping is all about. Equipping is that patch God wants to put in that spot so that the whole body will function as he intended for it to function. That's what it's about. When you equip the saints, that's what it is about. 
I mean, uh, I remember in, uh, I was riding my motorcycle to school once, and all of a sudden, uh, my whole I realized when I got off work, my, I mean, got off to school, my whole leg was like smelling of, of gasoline. And then I realized what happened. My gas tank had started leaking. And then, of course, I take it over to a friend, and uh, he helped me weld the thing together. And it was, what, Qatar Titsa. It was fixed now to fulfill what he was designed, what it was designed to be. Now think about it in spiritual terms. You've got to get this analogy. Equip simply means this. You do your part so it patches up the body of Christ so that the body in its entirety will function how God intended for it to function. You don't do your part, there's going to be a hole right there. That's the whole idea of equipping. You equip one another. The next reason, of course, is, like I said, the next step up. You can look at the progression right there. First is equipping, and then it says what? For the gifts of, for the works of service. It's given to equip the saints for what? So that the saints now are equipped to do what? To the works of service. The first reason is equipping. The second reason, the greater reason is what? So that the saints themselves will do the works of service. I think it's kind of interesting because sometimes traditional churches, you know, if there's work to be done, you just hire someone to do it. But the truth is this, and I'm not against having staff in churches and everything else, but the point within a church is so that the body is equipped for works of service. It's not my job. It's not Seth's job to do it. It's the body's job. We equip. We all, when we exercise, we equip one another. For what? For works of service. To serve. To serve. To equip the saints for the works of service. One pastor said this, the church is too much like a football game. I said that because it's the first weekend, really. It's like a football game. 50,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise, watching 22 people on field who are desperately looking to rest. (laughs) It's true. The church cannot be a spectator-driven sport. It's never meant to be that. Never, never meant to be that. We participate. We engage We are all in when it comes to equipping and equipping so that we can serve better. Equipping so that we can serve better. And it's amazing when you see a healthy church because a healthy church knows how to serve. Why? Because the believers themselves are equipping one another because they're doing their part. It's amazing how it all goes together. Take up the work of service and the whole idea of service, the word there is deacon. We know that's the word servant. That's the idea there, deacon. We get that word from there. The gifts to equip, then from equipping, it's for works of service. And the third ultimate reason he gives there in verse 12 is to build up the body of Christ. To build up the body of Christ. We are equipping. As we exercise our gifts, we equip. Equipped to serve. And in doing that, when we do our part, we build up the body of Christ. We build up the body of Christ. Think about the scenario. If you had to run, if you had to run 15 miles, 
Okay, and then you have to bike 50 miles. And then you have to swim like two miles. How many of us would really make it? Probably none. Definitely not me. I don't know how to swim. So, But my friend Roy, who, who trains for a triathlon, guess what? He is equipped to do this because his body is healthy because he's been trained and he's equipped. His body has been built up for what? To endure the hardships. That's the whole idea right there. We equip so that we serve and as we serve and exercise the gifts, we build the body and when the body is built, we stand firm against everything the enemy throws against us. That's the point. To build the body of Christ and not just ourselves. You build the body. Again, just, it is the truth, but it's unfortunate that too many spectator-driven churches right now and everybody else just performs and entertains everybody else. If I'm not entertained, I can't come to church. Get over yourself. You're not coming to church to entertain yourself. You're coming here to serve and build the body of Christ. Do your part. I don't know, I can go on on that, but just, just the truth. It becomes more real as we keep going as there. The saints are equipped to do the works of ministry using their spiritual gifts, and as a result, the body of Christ is built up and strengthened. That is a strong, healthy church. How do you build a strong, healthy church? You have gifted people equipping the sales to do the ministry, and as they do that ministry, they build each other up, and as we build each other up, we build a healthy church. It's all one big cycle. I know I'm repeating myself, but that's just the truth, church. That's what we got to live by. The body is built up internally, but what people see is the final product. Verse 13, until we all attain the unity of faith. This is just, if you want to underline some stuff, it is really powerful right here. Until we all attain the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. You want to underline unity? Underline knowledge of the Son of God to mature, to a mature man. To the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Unity, knowledge, maturity, and fullness of Christ. It all goes together. It all goes together. Because the fullness of Christ is simple. It simply means being Christ-like in everything. Being Christ-like, the unity of the faith, the unity around the truth, the knowledge of the Son of God, that is at the heart of everything we do as a church, as parts of the body. I don't think we can perfect, and the word is mature, unless we exercise our gifts. Hear me out here because this was pretty powerful what I heard. God is not satisfied that you go to church. Well, that's a good starting place, but he's not satisfied with church membership. He's not satisfied that a church has a certain number of members. He demands that we all come to bear his image and that collectively the whole church is Christ-like because that's the measure of the fullness of Christ. That's what maturity is all about. Biblical maturity is about being Christ-like. Being Christ-like. 
And it's pretty obvious that we should be showing the world Christ individually and as collectively as well. When the body functions as it is meant to function, life flows through every part. Sorry, life flows to every part and through every part. Needs are met. Growth, genuine growth happens. Genuine growth happens when that happens. And as we do that, as we happen and start functioning as the body is intended to function, two things happen and he lists it right there. First thing that happens when we grow and build the body of Christ, the first one is protection. We touched on that briefly. Protection, that's verse 14. Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So when the body begins to be healthy, as it builds itself up, we get or we have protection. Because what does it say? You are no longer infants tossed around or thrown around, deceived by what? False teachings or false doctrines that sound great and seem great and feel great, but it's nothing to do with the truth. We're not deceived and led astray that way because we're building up the body. And the whole idea, the no longer be infants. I, I love kids. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do love kids and I, I love their in, innocence. I love their trusting nature. And, and the amusing part is they don't always get it right, though they think they get it right. They think they know, but they don't always get it right. Like Amara, like, when I'm 200 years old, and I'm like, <laughs> they don't get it. <laughs> it's amusing when a kid says that, but when you see adults who refuse to grow up, it's a whole nother ball game. Like I said, I struggle with adults who act like kids. I'm, I'm sure you all know people like that as well. But you no longer will be infants who are just so gullible. No. You no longer be infants because for kids, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's about them. But when you meet an adult who makes it all about them, what do you do? It makes you cringe. It's not amusing at all. They're easily deceived. Kids are easily deceived. But he says, hey, when the body functions right, it builds itself up. It is protected from the deception of the enemy. A mature Christian, church. A mature Christian knows his part because he realizes when he plays his part, when he exercises his gift, it brings protection to the body of Christ. The second thing that happens, the first is protection. And the second thing that happens, I can say, is proclamation. That's verse 15. Verse 14 is you no longer be infants. Verse 15, it says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Again, if you notice the number of times within this portion of scripture, he's pushing Christ's likeness as the ultimate goal. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We speak the truth in love. I was one pastor, I remember as a kid who shared this, and it probably was at youth camp, and it, it, it still um, is in my head and rings true for me every time. Speaking the truth in love, he said, is this, speaking the truth with a pure heart. That stuck with me for a long time. I still hold on to that because there's a lot of truth in that. 
speaking the truth in love, is speaking the truth with a pure heart, with no arrogance, not a boastful heart, not with a sense of superiority. We speak the truth in love with a pure heart, with brokenness and humility, reflecting the head, Christ himself, who gave himself up for the world that he loved. He didn't compromise the truth, but he preached the truth in love. We speak or proclaim the truth in love as John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, and I've quoted him several times, he says this, Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth, and our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. Let me say that again. Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth, and our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. Church, we are called to reflect this kind of maturity. And when we do function as God intended for us to function, build each other up, and we push each other, encourage one another, and build each other up into the likeness of Christ, the world will notice. The world will notice. They will notice how you are patient. They will notice how you handle pressure. They will notice how you don't talk bad about other people. They will notice that you don't retaliate. The chances are they may never step foot in this building, but they will notice is what Radiant Life Church is all about when you go out in your workplace, in your school, at your golf club, or wherever you go. They will notice what this church is all about. And if we don't reflect Christ here, how can we think we will reflect Christ out there? We're fooling ourselves. Like I said, the chances are they will never step foot in this church. But the gospel is on display wherever we go. Do we reflect that maturity that Paul is talking about here? Starts right in the beginning. You have a gift. Get the progression. You have to get this church. Get the progression. First, you've been given the gift of salvation. That's one. Second, now you have gifts. When you are called, you have a gift. If you say you don't have a gift, you better question whether you've been called in the first place. You have a gift. We've been given the gift of salvation. Now we have spiritual gifts that we have been given. The spiritual gifts are meant to be exercised. When we exercise the gifts, we equip one another. When we equip one another, what happens? Yes, we become mature. When we equip one another, we push one another to serve the body of Christ. And as we serve and minister in the body of Christ, the body of Christ is built up. And when we are built up, we become, we have the protection that God wants so that we won't fall away. But we also have a witness, the proclamation as we speak the truth in love so that people will witness what God's love is all about because we are more Christ-like. But remember where we start starts by knowing the gift. I pray if you don't know that gift, it is available to everybody here. It's the free gift of salvation. That's where it starts. Verse 16, from him, the whole body. It's kind of amazing how he puts it all together right at the end. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Who's holding it together? 
Who's holding it together? We are holding it together, right? He's the head, joined and held together by each supporting part, grows and builds, read the next word, builds itself. That's the point. He could have done it. He's God. He could have done it. He could have sent angels to do it. But it says here what? We build itself. Christ is the head. We are our parts. And we build each other up. It is our responsibility to live lives worthy of the calling that he has placed on our lives in humility. <laughs> My mind is all over the place right now. But we do that knowing in humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, and in love. There you go. But we know our part, we pray, as we build the body together. And it says this, supporting ligaments grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Full cycle. It's just a beautiful way he puts it together. It's an amazing way he describes the church. It's for him. It's all for him. But growth happens when we build each other up. It grows and builds itself up. If you think you can grow without those around you, you are mistaken. You're not reading what Ephesians is saying. If you want to grow in Christ, we need each other. That's how we grow. You can't grow just sitting on, on your couch and watching TV the whole time. You're not going to grow. Growth happens when we learn to lean on one another and everybody does their part. We are joined together, held together by each other. And that's how we grow together into perfection. That's maturity to be Christ-like. Let me summarize this real quick. The only way to grow a church is to stay and take to heart what Ephesians is saying right here. It's not limited to those gifts that he, that he mentioned. Those are some of the gifts. But we've got to take to heart what he is saying. You have been called and given a gift. Exercise the gift that he has given us. Let's all stand to our feet at this time. Church, I encourage you to read this chapter again and again. I've been reading Ephesians every day with my other stuff. But if you want to grow, you've got to consider and take seriously what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 4 such a neatly packaged portion of scripture you want to honor God with your life live out this portion of scripture 
you want to see lives changed around you, live out the scripture. There's no time to pick at one another or get caught up with petty quarrels and no time to think about yourself more than others in front of you. Like I said at the beginning of chapter 4, Christ first, others second, me last. That humility, that gentleness, patience, tolerance, and love. This is ours, church. This isn't something for us to read and say, oh man, that's impossible. No, if it was impossible, he would not have put it in there. God has given you a gift. Each one of us has been given a gift. The biggest and the greatest gift is the gift of salvation. And as you bow your heads, I want you to focus in on that question. Have you accepted that gift? You got to answer. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, raise your hands or anything of that sort today. It is the greatest gift ever. And if you've gone past that step one, now you need to know what Paul says. But you also have been given spiritual gifts. Now you may say you don't know what your gift is. Hey, talk to someone close to you and they will be able to point to you in the right direction. But each one of us has been given by God a spiritual gift or gifts. Have you been exercising that gift? Have you been exercising that gift? Because if you aren't, church, like I said, you're robbing the body of what Christ intended. doesn't matter if it's visible or invisible or people recognize it. It does not matter. You have a part to play because God has given you a gift. You're not accountable to me. You're not accountable to your neighbor. You're not accountable to anybody else. But what are you doing with the gift God has given you? You've got to answer him. Because the gift was never given for you. The gift was given so that you will equip the saints. 
equipped. The idea of equipping, remember, the idea of equipping is to add something. Add something to that person so that that person can fulfill fulfill the calling to which Christ has created or called you. Are you exercising that gift? Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, works of service. Pastor Seth and me, yes. We have the title pastor, but knowing Seth and knowing me, we don't consider it a job we do. It's a calling that we feel like a gift. But it's not just our job, our work to serve. It's all of us got to serve so that the body will be built. There's so much there, church. Let's worship the Lord for a couple of minutes. You stepped down into So here 
thank you, God, for the greatest gift of all. Thank you, Jesus, that you called us, God, that you saved us, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God, that you gave us grace, God. The gift of grace, Lord. Oh, God, thank you, Lord, that you, Lord, you have called us to a purpose, God. To live our lives worthy, God, balanced, Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise you, God. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you, God. Holy Spirit, quicken our hearts and my minds. I know those of us who love God, want to honor Him. I know we want to honor Him, but let me say this and let me challenge you with this. If you want to live a life that honors God, be faithful in exercising the gift that He has given you. That's the way. That's what we strive for as individuals and a church, to honor Him that way. In the process, we are built up individually, but we also build up the body of Christ. Thank you, God, for the high calling that you have placed on our lives. Thank you, God, that you have freely given gifts to each and every person here, God. Lord, I pray for clarity, God, so that they will know what their gift is and what you are calling them to. And then I pray you give them boldness to exercise that gift. Exercise that gift, God. Not looking for recognition or anything else, but looking to please and honor you alone. I pray that we will encourage God and build each other up, God. As the body is built up, that's our desire. We thank you, Father, once again, Lord. I pray, God, that you will be all in all once again. That our lives will honor you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. We give you praise, God. We give you glory. With everything within us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you guys.